Hello, everybody. Welcome to AAA Sky. Today, we're discussing human spaceflight systems at Lockheed Martin with Paige Godfrey. I'm Stanley Ferdig. And I'm MJ. AAA Sky is produced by the Amateur Astronomers Association of New York, whose mission is to promote the study of astronomy and to emphasize its cultural and inspirational value. Find out more at AAA at AAA.org. First, here's a word from our president of the AAA, Brian Berg. Hello and welcome back to AAA Sky, the official podcast of the Amateur Astronomers Association of New York, and I am Brian Berg, your president. Before I let you know what this podcast is about, I do want to announce, as I have in the President's Message column in iPiece, our newsletter, and as I have spoken about during our most recent lecture, which is the last one of the season, by the way, before it kicks off again in the fall, I am stepping down as president after three years of helping to run this fantastic organization. Thank you all for being a part of this in whatever way you are, whether you volunteer, listen to this podcast, come out and look through our telescopes, go to our classes, listen to our lectures, go to our astrophotography groups, or whatever it is that you do. Thank you for being part of AAA. In this episode, Stanley interviews Paige Godfrey, a human space flight system software engineer for NASA's Orion spacecraft. The spacecraft will be sending astronauts to the moon for the first time in 50 years and then on to Mars. Cannot wait for that. She'll discuss her career path as a woman, how she went from being an astronomer to a systems engineer at Lockheed Martin, to answering questions about the work she's doing on this groundbreaking project. Answering questions is one of the things we aim to do here at AAA, and not just with podcasts like this, but with all those things I just mentioned. The lectures, the classes, the astrophotography, and everything else that we do. Remember to check out AAA.org for a complete schedule. Thank you for allowing me to serve as president of this organization for the last three years. And with that said, Stan, take it away. Paige Godfrey is an astronomer turned engineer, currently a senior software engineer at Lockheed Martin, the builder of numerous spacecraft for NASA. As such, she works within their space systems business area and specifically in the Human Spaceflight Group. Her move to the Human Spaceflight Group in May 22 was a case of exquisite timing just six months before the launch of Artemis. Prior to that, she was a systems engineer in the company's Rotary and Mission Systems Division, which builds systems for military and other customers. Before coming to Lockheed, Paige was the Vice President of Education for SLU, a public astronomy outreach and online robotic telescope sharing organization based in Connecticut, which she first joined as Director of Research in 2017, soon after she finished her doctorate in physics at CUNY. Paige simultaneously was a research associate at the American Museum of Natural History, where she studied brown dwarfs. In her young career, Paige has given numerous talks about various astronomy subjects at the Museum of Natural History, as well as at Columbia University. We spoke to Paige in her office via Zoom. 
Hello, Paige. Welcome to AAA Sky. Hi, thank you for having me. Paige, the last time we spoke was a few years ago when you were Director of Research and later VP of Education at SLU. Uh, for our listeners, that's S-L-O-O-H.com. As a parenthesis, I wrote an article for the AAA's newsletter, Eyepiece, on your work at SLU, which I encourage our members to read, as SLU still is a really cool resource, especially for amateur astronomers. So, that said, my first question for you is, how did you come to move from SLU to Lockheed Martin? My career trajectory has been all over the place. I spent many years in academia, and then afterwards, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So while I was finding myself, I came across SLU, and they just swept me away as such an interesting career move to make. Uh, I really enjoyed my time there, and it also was time that I was cultivating myself. What am I going to do with my career long term? And I realized I sort of missed the technical work that I was doing in academia, but I had no interest in going back to academia and I wound up in engineering industry. So it was a very curved way of getting to engineering compared to some of my peers who just got an engineering degree to begin with. But I'm appreciative for all I learned along the way. Yeah, I've, I've kind of followed a similar um, crooked path. To, to I started out in academia as well and I loved okay. it for business and but, but it's not about me, so let's let's get that. So, um, well, for, say, high school students who are considering a career in STEM, uh, what words of encouragement would you have for them, especially for women who have historically been underrepresented in STEM jobs? Absolutely. I think two pieces of advice that sort of go hand in hand are, one, to keep your eyes open and your mind open to a nonlinear career path. You can try other things and still go back. You can change your mind. You can bop around within your departments. There's so many opportunities to learn and to try different things. And people are very willing to mentor you if you ask. And I think that is the second part of it, which is mentorship and networking. And especially for women and minorities and people of color, networking and having trusted peers in the community can open up so many doors for you. And don't be shy to open a door and then close it and then try another one and then go back to the first door. People are willing to to work with you and work around you. And it's messy. And I think that's also the beauty of it. I couldn't agree more. Um, so let's talk a bit about Lockheed Martin. Uh, in the way of background, I'll just give our listeners a 30-second primer on Lockheed Martin. The company has a long history of working with NASA, including building, if I've understood correctly, every spacecraft that we've ever put on the surface of Mars, from the Viking missions all the way to the Ingenuity helicopter. Um, to say nothing of the Lucy and OSIRIS-REx missions, and of course, Lockheed Martin has other divisions building military hardware and software, going all the way back to Rosie the Riveter, some of our older listeners, maybe, I don't know, that's before my time, maybe somebody can recall that. Um, so within all of that, what's your role at Lockheed Martin? I work on Orion, 
the human-rated capsule for the Artemis mission that will go back to the moon and eventually to Mars. I'm in the human spaceflight department of commercial civil space. Lockheed has five different business areas that break down across military and space. And then within space, there's commercial civil space, there's deep space, there's military space, um, and then human spaceflight and Orion program. That's a lot. <laughs> it is a, yeah, it's a very large company. We have some yes. hundred thousand employees across wow. the country. So okay, so you're working in human spaceflight systems. Without disclosing anything that's proprietary to Lockheed Martin, can you tell us what you're working on? Yeah. So I'm a systems engineer, and I work on the backup flight software for Orion. So. Imagine you're an astronaut and you just took off for space and everything breaks. <laughs> I'm kidding. Oh, not no. that dramatic. <laughs> but uh, your primary flight software goes down. So I work on flight software and your primary flight software, which is supposed to carry you to the moon and back, uh, something goes wrong. We want a backup. So I work on the backup flight software, which will kick in if something happens to the primary with the goal of returning to the primary flight software. Um, but this will bring the astronauts back safely to Earth. Which is, yeah, that's number Which one. Is the, the number one goal is, yep, astronaut but, safety. So you're hoping that the thing that you're working on doesn't get used? Exactly. <laughs> yes. That's got to be strange. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we make sure it works, but we hope we never have to use it. <laughs> right. Of course. Of course. Um so Orion first passed its flight test several years ago. I think it was 2014 or something. But the SLS wasn't ready to launch it until last November. Uh, so what happened with Orion in the meantime? So I wasn't here. I just joined space uh, in 2022, um, right in time to see Artemis 1 launch, which was pretty special. But there are a lot of things that go into the planning of these missions, which takes decades, and it's money and a little bit of, or a lot of bit of politics, and <laughs> planning and timing and making sure that step one works before you get to step two. Uh, the hardware, you know, gets installed, but then we still have to make updates to software and go back and fix things. It's a very big cycle of testing and updating. So I imagine that is probably what went on in that timing. I guess iterating, yeah. Um, okay, so um, do you get involved in any of the robotic missions as well, or you just stick to human spaceflight, which is certainly big enough by itself? But yes, just human spaceflight. So Lockheed is so big and so diverse. Um, you really work very specifically on one thing, as opposed to a smaller company where you might have hands in multiple different. Um, project. So within human spaceflight, Orion is our our biggest mission right now. There could be others that come down the pipeline that we could work on, but uh, I will only be working on human-rated um, programs. Okay. There's something I wanted to ask you that I forgot, but I just realized. Mm -hmm. So your background is you have a doctorate in physics and you published yes. research on brown dwarfs Yes, and, and you worked in education. Uh, there's kind of a classic dichotomy of scientists versus engineers, and you came clearly from a scientist background. 
Yes. And now you're you're a senior systems engineer which at a company which is full of people with engineering degrees and experience, engineering experience. Culturally speaking, what's that like? It is funny because I've uh, heard the joke regarding the Big Bang Theory. And, oh, I don't um, know. Please share it with oh, us. There, so the, a lot of them were doctorate uh, astrophysicists, and then one of their best friends was an engineer. And so it was the running joke on the show. But um, <laughs> And I can say that coming from the science background. My spouse is an engineer, and so we make fun of him for that joke all the time. But no, <laughs> um, a lot of the skills are the same. And the courses that I took for my education might have been titled differently, geared differently. Uh, the applications that you learn for the skills are different, but at the root of it, the skills are very similar. So Lockheed definitely sees that and appreciates it. And I would go as far to say welcomes it as um, they build a diverse group of scientists and engineers that bring different perspectives to the table. So I work with a lot of other science majors, in addition to obviously many, many engineering majors, but both are pathways to get into an engineering role. That sounds like a really well-managed group or well-managed company. Did that that require any adjustment by you or? Yes, um, definitely. One of the things that I missed out on in my education that would have been different aside from the actual like math and science and logical thinking skills is learning what engineering is. So I was hired as a systems engineer and I was like, okay, great. Now tell me what a systems engineer is Um, because I don't know the different types of engineering and, you know, the job description, the interview, you learn what your role is going to be. But so, you know, how does that fit into the the big picture and what other types of uh, engineers are there that go into the mission. And just the way that an engineer looks at a whole system and thinks about um, the very end when they're working on the very beginning is a little bit different, I think, than some of the science training we had where you start with the top of the problem and work your way through it. Right. You really need to see, you know, you're talking about Orion being completed 10 years early or eight years early, um, every single day, eight years ago, they had that flight in their head right. while they were working. Yeah, that, I, I, that's a significant difference. I get it. Um, so speaking of culture, <laughs> um, NASA, who doesn't strike me as an organization that just says to his contractors, okay, please go ahead and build this for me. And let us know when it's done. <laughs> um, I'd expect it to be quite the contrary. So do you interface with NASA pe- personnel on a, on a regular basis? Every single day. Yes, they have. Um, I'm not super familiar with how it's structured, but they have very similar teams that work on the things that we work on. And so we're basically doing it together. And I don't know that every team is structured like that. I know mine is. Uh, and the involvement between NASA and Lockheed ebbs and flows with the number of staff on either side, depending on where you are in the contract. Right. And we sort of trade off different parts. We are um, like they're contracted, like they ask us to build something and we provide it to them. And so there will be a handoff at some point. But along the way, we're working together and making sure that they're satisfied with what we're doing. They're helping us. It's very collaborative. 
Yeah, well, there's nothing, especially in human spaceflight, there's nothing more visible or nothing with a higher priority that I could imagine at NASA. So yeah. I imagine they keep a close eye on what's on progress and what's going on. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so is there anything else you can tell us about Orion? I think, and I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but I think the coolest thing about Orion was getting to watch the launch of Artemis 1 through the eyes of the engineers who built it. So sure. I started like a, just four or five months before the launch. And I was very, very new. I came from Rotary and Mission Systems at Lockheed. So I, this was my first exposure to working on um, spacecraft. And I felt very honored to be here, but I hadn't put in the years. And so working next to engineers who had been working on Orion for a decade was just, I can't tell you, it makes me think about the energy in like the rooms when, you know, back in the space shuttle days and we launched to the Apollo, when we launched it to the moon and people were all in the room cheering. That is sort of what you feel even remotely, even in a telecommuter position um, from your coworkers who've been working on it for so long. And Orion really is rated to do such cool things. It is definitely going to be the game changer for our generation. Like they talk about the Apollo generation and we right. are the Artemis generation. It's very cool. Yeah. So Orion is rated to go to Mars? Yes. That's very cool. Yes. And that is, um, so we have incremental steps along the way. You know, Artemis 1 was uncrewed. Artemis 2 will have crew on it. Um, Artemis 3, uh, I think they're still deciding what the Artemis 3 mission will exactly look like, but it should have crew on it again. And then um, I think Artemis 4 is the one that is going to Mars. And it just... Again, the whole engineering perspective, you have to have that Mars mission in your head when you're planning right now, right. even to, quote, just go to the moon, which is <laughs> a, no small feat in itself. You have to have Mars in your head as you're doing this work. Yeah, um, that's fabulous. Um, I hope I get to see it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a bit older than you. That, that was well, in that sense that I meant it. But uh, It depends on who you ask how yeah. soon we're going to Mars. <laughs> Some sometime people think the, it'll be a long time. Yeah, sometime in the 2030s. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. So in terms of the next steps in human spaceflight, I mean, you just went through some of it. I guess uh, the gateway, uh, when it gets okay. built, I suppose will be built to accommodate Orion. Yes. Um, anything else that you might, you want to prognosticate? Yeah. Um, I don't really know a whole lot about what that'll look like. I know that it's incredibly important to future missions and not even just the eventual Mars mission, but any future moon missions. I mean, establishing some sort of base out by the moon is how we're going to get any further into space, how we're going to secure a full-time presence on the moon. So, I think that this is, I think, a long time coming, really. I mean, I can't say from a technology perspective, of course, it took until now to, to be able to do this. But um, I think we all knew we were going to need to make a presence on the moon for a long time. 
to be able to go farther because just leaving Earth's orbit is really, really difficult and uses a lot of fuel. So if we can get out to the moon and sort of start from there and refuel out there or something, I know there's companies working on like refueling in space. Um, that's huge, especially Absolutely. for payloads because the mass of the spacecraft trying to get really far away plays a lot into it. So Sure, and, and the, there, I think yeah. it's the bulk of the weight of a spacecraft leaving Earth is the yeah. fuel. Mm -hmm. So if yes. you can get past that and start from the moon, that's the whole idea. Yeah. yeah. One thing which comes to mind right now when we're talking about Orion eventually going to Mars, so we've solved the how do we shield the crew from radiation, cosmic rays, and solar wind, et cetera, problem? We're working on it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean... It's, it's definitely, you know, obviously part of the plan. And I don't know how far along they are with that or or where they are. Um, that is a division called ECLIS, which is environmental. Well, I don't know. <laughs> In, there's a whole department that works on um, sure. like the environment, the safety, the suits, uh, the heat shields, things like that for the crew. And um we have experience in doing so. So we built, Lockheed built the aeroshell for the Perseverance rover, and that protected the um, Mars rover from heat. And right. so we have experience in doing that. And so now we just have to use that to build it for humans. Yeah. We just have to figure out how to land, <laughs> how to land a human-rated craft on Mars, yeah. which is no, nothing, nothing simple about that. Um, well, we certainly bring humans back through our atmosphere, which is a it, lot. Yeah, it's more easier dense. and tougher at the same time. I yeah. mean, yeah, uh, okay. but there's you, know, it, you heat up a lot more, but there's more of a cushion. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I do have one last question, which I'd like to ask you, which we um, always ask all of our guests to Triple A Sky which is not necessarily related to astronomy. It can be, but it doesn't have to. But it's this. What's your favorite place in New York City? The American Museum of Natural History holds a very dear place in my heart. I, While I did my doctorate at the City University of New York, I worked with my research team at the museum and was there multiple times a week for years. It's a beautiful museum, particularly the space uh, exhibit obviously is the best um the planetarium shows but also the area is gorgeous it's right across from central park cobblestone sidewalks it's so nice great bars and restaurants around there um okay well that event wraps things up thank you Paige, for spending your time with triple a sky thank you for having me this is really enjoyable it's good to talk to you Stanley, I really enjoyed this interview with Paige. I was really captivated by what she said with her advice with women in STEM. I ended up actually sending this audio to one of my friends and I shared it with her. I thought it was really powerful what she was talking about as far as being able to change your mind, to bounce around. And not everyone has a linear path. And for a human spaceflight systems engineer to say that, I just was blown away. Yeah, I think you know Paige is really admirable, and 
Um, I too am an ex-academic with a checkered past, uh, so to speak. <laughs> so I kind of identified with a lot of the things that she was saying. But in any case, um, I I, I think and I hope she'll be an inspiration to women to go into STEM. And uh, and it's okay if you decide after doing something for a couple of years, you know, this isn't what I want to spend my life doing. I want to do something else, which is what she did. Absolutely. I think that's uh, something that a lot of people need to hear. And uh, it was incredibly inspiring. Yeah. So um, speaking of inspiring, there's one thing she mentioned, which really caught my ear. Uh, at one point, she we were talking about the Orion capsule, of course. And at one point, she said that it's rated for Mars. And that led me to think, okay, well, maybe Artemis Four. I think she mentioned. Uh, but, um, you know, I think of all, if you think of all the sci-fi movies that you've seen about uh, travelers in space and their spaceships, they're usually a lot more roomy than I imagine the, the Orion capsule is. I mean, some of them will have a staircase, like a, a split-level house, and there's a downstairs <laughs> and an upstairs, or, yes. this is, or different rooms, but... This is a capsule as comfy as they can make it. Um, spending six months in a capsule like that, that sounds daunting to me. I guess that's why I'm not an astronaut. I mean, I guess, but I, I don't think the astronauts are um, saying, hey, don't sign me up for this. But I agree with you. I can't even imagine uh, spending that much time with someone just in a room. You know, I really, I, there's so many reasons to admire astronauts, but certainly uh, their patience in that regard is is a huge achievement. Yeah, and of course, I'm sure uh, Mission Control would keep them incredibly busy all day, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which helps. Yes. But, um, and maybe, who knows, maybe future versions of Orion, I don't know what the plans are, and I should have asked her, uh, <sighs> you know, to, maybe they'll add a... A new wing. I mean, well, maybe <laughs> next time. <laughs> no pun intended. So I loved what you said, Stanley, about dedicating years of your life to something that will hopefully never be used. I thought you mentioned a great point there, and I was pretty amazed that, uh, that we have people who dedicate so much of their time and their work to making sure to keep people safe. Yeah, well, you said it. That's the operative term is dedication of, of these people. Um, I doubt that I'd be able to do that. But again, I, I suppose there's a lot of pressure on NASA, whom they're all working for, um, not to have a horrible accident again. Um, of so course. That, that's why they have to do things this way. And my hat is off to them. Absolutely. Much respect to what they do. I'm incredibly grateful for what they do. And incredibly grateful for how far our technology has come. And now it's time for Looking Up, our calendar of club events open to the public this coming month. 
In the month of May, the AAA has multiple public observing events scheduled throughout the month. On Tuesday the 9th, we'll be observing at the High Line at 7.30 p.m. And we also have a public lecture on Zoom at 7 p.m. It's about Saturn's moon Titan. Don't miss it. On Thursday the 11th, we'll have our telescopes out for public observing at Pioneer Works in Brooklyn from 7 on. And on Saturday the 13th, we'll be heading out to Jenny Jump State Park in New Jersey for dark sky observing from 8 p.m. on. It's a dark sky site with clear skies and well worth the trip. We have a solar observing event at Pioneer Works on Sunday afternoon the 14th, and we'll be back to the High Line on Tuesday evening the 16th. On May 18th, we will have our annual members meeting at 6.30 p.m. Details available on our website. This is a members-only event, so if you haven't joined us yet, now is the time. Amen that. <laughs> on Friday the 19th, <laughs> we'll be observing again in the evening at Lincoln Center. And on that Friday and Saturday nights, we'll be traveling up to North South Lake, that's in the Catskills, for some more dark sky site observing. That's a members-only event, but it's great fun and the skies are wonderful. On Tuesday evening the 23rd, we're back at the High Line, and on Friday the 26th, we'll have a public observing at Floyd Bennett Field by Jamaica Bay. For those of you on Staten Island, on Saturday evening the 27th, we'll be at Great Kills Park from 8 p.m. on on Sunday afternoon, the 28th, we'll have solar observing for the public from 1 o'clock to 4 p.m. in the afternoon at Pier I. And finally, on the 30th, we'll be back at the High Line from 7 p.m. on. You can find more information and updates on all of these events, as well as directions to all of these locations on our website. That's our show. Tune in next time when we interview Alan and Aaron Slisky, a father-son team of builders on how to construct an observatory. Until then, stop by aaa.org to learn more about the AAA and how you can become a part of it. AAA Sky is a production of the Amateur Astronomers Association of New York. Audio editing and original music are by Preston Staley, and our technical producer is Parker Boussier.